Hey, on a, on a devoted Sunday like today, one of the reasons that we do the devoted Sunday uh, thing is, <clears throat> um, and you probably have this thought, like I did growing up and, and even as an adult, you know, if I'm ever the pastor of a church someday, um, not that I had any ambition or plan of ever being there, and, and yet here it has, it's happened. So I get to, uh, unlike most people, I actually get to do some of those things. And one of them was, um, I would always feel like communion or baptism or things like that. Um, again, this was never intentional, I think, in any of these churches, but easily could feel like something kind of tacked on. Like, oh, oops, it's been a while since we did this, we better do this real quick. Or it's something that's just done. You just do it, and you do it again, you do it again, you do it again, do it again, and no one ever explains, like, what, what is this thing we're doing? I've often wondered that, you know, as much as we, as we think it's funny when you can go onto a college campus and be like, randomly ask students, so who fought in the Civil War, and they have no clue, you know, or, or what, what year was World War II, and they're like, uh, 1517, like they're just 1812, they're just making up numbers. <clears throat> I think if we stopped the average church member and said, explain communion to me, or explain baptism to me, I'm not sure our answers would be that much better. And so I thought, you know what, when we do this, let's take a couple of times, two or three times, maybe four times a year, kind of shut everything else down and focus in on these things. It's also very important, this conversation that we have about things that are sacred, things that are sacred, that you would say, this, this is something that's special. And this is a tough conversation for me, I'll totally acknowledge, and I'll explain why as we go through this, but, but things, that are, things that are set apart and sacred. Part of why we need this concept of sacred it applies to so many different areas. This just last Wednesday, for example, talking about intimacy with our students. Man, if you're going to teach on intimacy, much less sexual intimacy, it's really vital that people understand the concept of some things being sacred. I think the church didn't teach that super well, and so a lot of us, a whole generation of us, kind of grew up with this idea that, for example, sex being an example, sex is just bad. It's just a big no-no, right? We don't talk about it. We don't discuss it. We don't use the word. We're so uncomfortable with it. We're just going to sit over here. Here's what I know about sex. No. That's all I know about it is it's a no. Like it's a, we, don't, we don't ever have any of those. We don't do that stuff. Like whatever that is, we don't do that stuff. And so the world becomes the dominant voice in things when the church, as we're going to talk about the family, refuses to be the dominant voice in those things. And so what happened is very easily, we, we, because we lack that sacred, it feels like there's only two options. There's common and there's trash. And those are kind of the only two choices that we have about things. Is we have to file it under common every day, nothing special. It's just something everything and everyone and everybody does. And it's a, or it's trash, it's bad, it's filthy, it's nasty, it's, it's no, it's bad, whatever, right? And, and so we're left without this third vitally important category called sacred. And, and so actually, when I do premarital counseling now, I often have to help couples work through this idea that like, all I can think about is, you know, all this has been bad, no, no nasty, filthy sin, whatever. And then going, now we're talking about, okay, now we're going to be doing this stuff. And somehow now it's not that. How do I understand this? And this concept of sacred is important to understanding this. It's, and you remember, you remember me, I, I think I did this in a sermon not that long ago where I brought in the three plates and it's like, here's the, here's the paper plate, which is just trash. And I'm just going to throw it out on the ground. And you know, when we're done, that's what I did, this paper plate and you read on it and it's disposable, it's trash. And so I threw it down on the ground. And then there was the, the common stuff, the stuff that is just everyday stuff, just a plastic plate that you eat your, 
you know, your grilled cheese on or your hot dogs or your whatever. It's just whatever you eat each, each day. And, you, and so again, like the other one, I threw it out on the ground. And then I pulled out, and I don't remember now if it was Ginger's grandmother's or my grandmother's, Ginger's grandmother's like China, fine China. And I talked about it being how that's sacred. You have trash, you have common, and now you have sacred. It's special. And, and because you know I'm capable of being that dumb, when I started to act like I was going to throw it down on the ground, everybody's like, <gasps> like this whole, the whole room, all of you sucked the oxygen out of the air because you thought maybe I was actually going to throw it onto the ground. We don't throw it down there because it's, it's sacred. You don't pull that out for your grilled cheese. You don't, that's, that's for Christmas, if anything, right? I mean, it's for the special, it's a special, it's sacred. This is a concept that the Jewish people understood well, for example, and we see it woven through Scripture all the time. This, this, this picture, you, you didn't, the priest didn't take their grilled cheese in and then set it on the showbread table in the temple and just eat off of that. You wouldn't do that. And yet, to not use the bread and the showbread table when it's called for would also be wrong. It's sacred, meaning it has a specific purpose. To use it for something else is wrong. To not use it for that is also wrong. It's sacred. It's special. It's for that. And so what is it? What is it about these weird things that we do as Christians, some of these weird things we do like baptism or communion or even family dedications? Why does every version of Christianity have some version of these things? What makes them special? What makes them sacred? Well, part of it is each of these represent some type of physical manifestation of a spiritual experience. We've talked about one of the conversations we've had about sacred is the idea that that where the spiritual touches the physical, we call that a temple. Where the spiritual touches the physical, we call that a temple. But you go, but we don't call this room a temple. You're right. We don't. We call you a temple and me a temple. The Bible says we're temples. We are where the spiritual and the physical touch. Now, we are the holy of holies as the Holy Spirit living in us. We wander around. Our bodies are temples wandering around where the spiritual and the physical touch and have experience. That's who we are. And so what we want to do is as a community, we experience some of these special things, these sacred things. Now, what makes it tough, and uh, the staff knows this, and, and uh, Paul's watched me wrestle through this many times, this idea of, okay, so what do we call sacred then? What is a sacrament? Because different denominations have different definitions for what a sacrament is. And traditionally in the Baptist church, there's really only a couple, baptism and communion. <laughs> and yet, when you to call it a sacrament, it's say, okay, this is sacred, this is set apart, it's special, it's, it's connected to the salvation and the message of Jesus Christ. And I go, yeah, then wouldn't, wouldn't like changing diapers count? Isn't that a sacred act in obedience to what God has called us to do? And it's, it's this, this idea that somehow some things are common and some things are sacred when we do something in the name of Jesus Christ, whatever we do, whether word or deed, do it in the name of Jesus Christ. There's a sense in which, well, I'm the one doing it. I'm the, I represent the Holy of Holies. The Spirit lives in me. I'm doing this thing God has commanded me to do. How is that not a sacrament? It just feels like to me that's, that line is real blurry. What counts as sacred or what counts as common when we're doing stuff out of obedience? When I serve my wife because God told me to, isn't that sacred? It's just, there's a sense in which that is sacred. So what I, but, but we still need these categories. And so for us to learn about these and divide them out. Yesterday in, uh, in his breakout session, uh, John Redfern referenced in teaching about worship, 
he referenced, paraphrasing kind of C.S. Lewis, um, where he talked about this. If you look around and realize you want more, you desire more than what this world has to offer, then you should use that. Let that be evidence to you that you were not created merely for this world. The fact that you desire something more than this world has to offer should be evidence that you weren't created merely for this world. That's part of what it means to be human, is to have something greater. So referencing baptism, here's one of the things we always talk about with baptism. Part of why I'm a Baptist is because I like the way we handle the conversation about baptism. Um, it's, we're, we're always trying to be clear on the fact that our merit cannot save us. Our merit cannot give us a right relationship with God. My behaviors can't earn God's approval, including the obedience of being baptized. That would not be sufficient for me to now somehow have earned salvation because I was willing to obey and be baptized. So salvation in and of itself doesn't come through baptism. Certainly being dunked in water does not make you saved. Otherwise, you'd have been saved when your big brother dunked you in a pool when you were a little kid and held you under, right? It's not how this works. Not even obedience to be baptized or our parents' obedience to baptize us. How would that possibly save us? Our parents being obedient to God to baptize us or have a sprinkled or whatever, how would that save us? That couldn't save us. That would be their merit or our merit. Just like in a courtroom, the goodness of God's good gift of purification from our guilt is what we are testifying to in baptism. This, this morning, you watched the video, Joe baptizing his wife, is a testimony of his obedience to Jesus Christ to baptize people, which is something Jesus instructed us to do. Jessica being baptized by him is a testimony of his obedience, of God's obedience, of Christ's, excuse me, of her obedience to follow Christ's example and to, to let everybody else know about it. Now, what are they testifying to? Or testifying to the life-giving work of Jesus Christ. Let's look in Romans 6, starting in verse 2. Paul's just asked about sinning, and is sin something that should be uh, an everyday part of our lives? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. This is why the, the, the little phrase that we say traditionally when we baptize people, buried with Christ in baptism in death, and resurrected or raised with him to walk in the newness of life. That comes directly from that passage. That's what's going on there. Jesus Christ has done this magnificent thing with us spiritually, and we now have a physical picture of it, a manifestation of it, if you will. My word that I like to use is a consummation of it. And the same way that the wedding night is the consummation of the spiritual thing that happened at a wedding, baptism is the consummation of the spiritual thing that happens with Christ when we are united with Him. Verse 5, For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. And the physical expression of that, the final physical expression of that will be the day when we are resurrected and given new bodies on, on the new earth, under the new heaven. 
That's the picture. Baptism, essentially, every single time we do baptism, which is why when you get the email saying we're doing a baptism, I encourage you to get here a little early and experience it, is you're getting a correspondence course in salvation every time. It's like you're on a Zoom meeting and you get to experience this, the truth of what salvation is again and again and again. It is the, it is our, the spiritual experience of being dead and buried, but not left there. When I do this someday, when I finally work it up and figure out a way to do it and do it, someday I'm going to um, hide an air tank down in the baptismal. And then what I'm going to do when we're teaching on baptism is I'm going to hold the person down and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just teach about baptism while they're down. I'm going to teach about the death of Jesus Christ and, and his burial and while the person's underwater the whole time. And I know this will work. Um, I, I said this first service. I know, this, I know this will work for a couple of reasons. One, we had a jacuzzi when I was growing up. Any of y'all? So we had a jacuzzi. And if you, if you have a jacuzzi and you have the little bubble things at the bottom, you can press your lips to the, to the bubbles and you can breathe. I used to make a lot of money for my friends betting them how long I could stay underwater in the jacuzzi. And, I, they would, and they would panic. I mean, after a while, they would panic. They'd be like, come on. Like 12 minutes in, they're like, he's dead. And they're like pulling me up out of the water. I'm like, what? What? I'm fine. I've, I've only been 12 minutes. What are you freaking out about? And like... Um, I, I will also just say, just by the way, if you, if you attempt to try this trick at home, make sure you don't put your mouth on the jets. That won't, that's, not, that's not the same experience at all. Like, don't, don't do that. <laughs> it's a, the voice of experience talking. So this is a, if you are, I, I think it would speak to us. Wouldn't it speak to you? Wouldn't you be like, uh, 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 if, if, if five minutes and I'm still talking and that person's down there? That's what we're exemplifying. That person is dead. They're dead. The old person's dead. They're dead. You're dead to your sins now. You used to be dead in your sins. Now you're dead to your sins. That doesn't mean they're not there. That just means they have no authority over you. When you die, your boss can't boss you around anymore. This is the freedom that comes in that. So 1 Peter 3, Peter talks about this. Peter, which if you remember, we <coughs> talked about this, connected baptism to the experience of Noah and his family being saved. Baptism, which corresponds to this, talking about Noah, now saves you. Listen, not as a removal of dirt from the body. It isn't the water or the body that is what saves you here, but the appeal to God for a good conscience. We unpacked this when we talked about it. I believe what Peter's referencing there is the fact that from the time of Adam and Eve eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, our conscience has been broken. Our understanding of good and evil has been broken. We've assigned it only to our own understanding and not to his understanding. And here we have this idea. I'm saying, no, no, we're appealing to God for his conscience to live in us. That we would have the right moral stance because of him through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which makes it sacred. I was purchased from death. I was purchased from slavery and wrath, the wrath of a holy, just, and righteous God. I was purchased from that by that very God paying my price for me. I am so glad that there's a memory for that. There's an activity that we can do physically to show that the consummation of baptism. Today we experienced on the screens or here if you were here this morning, a witness, like on a stand at a trial, give testimony to the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the claim that they have experienced that through him. So we're appreciative to Jessica for giving us that testimony. If you've never experienced the baptism, you, though you have put your faith in Jesus Christ for some reason, you've decided not 
to be baptized, I would strongly, I'd love to really urge you, recommend you, encourage you to step up in faith and take that step. It doesn't save you. I don't believe it can condemn you to not have it. But the opportunity to teach the, the course in the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, why would we ever miss that opportunity? Why wouldn't we take that chance? Let me encourage you in that. Today's focus actually is the family, <coughs> not baptism. And in a minute, I'm going to talk a little bit about communion as well. Um, the importance of the family. Our story, the story in the Bible starts with God, not surprisingly, right? It's his story after all. And so we start with God, but it's amazing how quickly we skim past, we kind of yada yada past this whole creation thing. You ever notice that? That's why I create so much, so much debate and conversation among Christians. I always want to debate the details of, of, of Genesis chapters 1 and 2, when apparently God thought giving us just two chapters on that was sufficient. And so he's like, listen, I did it. I did it for a reason. It was me moving along now to another topic. And the topic he moves us along to very quickly is family. It's amazing how quickly God's story goes from like, oh yeah, all the stuff. There was nothing and then there was something. And then there was life from lifelessness. And then there was all these things and like, yeah, got that. Good. I want to get to the family. I'm excited about that. So very quickly, he creates this concept called marriage and family. Now that's really intriguing that he does this. Um, uh, when you think about especially that the main method of the Jewish world to pass along the truth of who God is, is family. And that continues through the New Testament. The importance of the family is wild here. You're talking about the Jewish faith, which had eventually a massive temple. I mean, a world-changing temple. People traveled from all over the world to see the Jewish temple. They had a very sophisticated priestly class. I mean, a, a whole family whose job was to play the role of the priest. Very detailed instructions on how they taught these things, on, on how they applied these things, on how they did these things. Then they had the law. The law, 600 plus rules, laws, meant to guide the people either towards moral rightness in God, towards dependence on Him, or to understand themselves as being distinct and independent of being his people and the way those things play out. It's amazing to consider that, that, the, that God ordained all of those things, uh, more or less the temple, I guess you could say God ordaining the temple. He, in the end, he did. He certainly, he certainly blessed it. But then you have, he ordained the priestly class. He ordains the law. And then we get this passage that Jared read to us a few minutes ago from Deuteronomy. I'm going to go back a few verses and, and build up to it. Listen to this. This is Deuteronomy 6. That's pretty early in the Bible. Verse 6, six verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord has commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Okay, so all these laws, all this priestly stuff, all these, these different ways of worshiping God, he's given to them so that they can, they can have them and live in his blessings. Starts here, verse 3. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord your God of your fathers has promised you, and a land flowing with milk and honey. So again, listen, let me say it again. Do them. 
Do what I'm teaching you. Follow these. Verse 4, he's going to remind them who he is and why he gives this instruction. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. When we go, um, when we go to Israel, we intentionally try to learn this in the Hebrew and then we say it in the Hebrew every morning and every evening, uh, at least we try to, just like a good faithful Jewish family would, um, to say this in the morning and the, in the evening. Um, you always have to, they, they are super honored, the Jewish people are super honored that we try to do the Shema correctly. Um, if you get them to be really honest with you, they will mock how bad our pronunciation is of this, but they don't even care. They're just so proud that we're trying to do this and we're trying to do it in the original language. It goes, it sounds a little something like this, Shema Israel, Adonai Elchinu, Adonai Evhat, Vayahavta et Adonai Eloeha, Vohol Lavaha, Uvahol Lashika, Uvahol Meadeha, Amen. Again, I am sure if you know Hebrew, if you're a good Jew raised speaking Hebrew, you're kind of chuckling at the same time that you're appreciative that we're trying with this. The Jewish people, I didn't raise my pinky when I did it, which I normally do because I'm holding the book here, but normally raise your pinky when you say it because you realize God's going to have to express some power if you're going to do this, right? You're going to have to do this in me, Lord. Then a lot of power, just your pinky's plenty. Just flex that a little bit. That's all that that's for. Just flex your pinky a little bit, and that'll help me live this out in my life. But think about the fact that God didn't meet some new prophet on a smoke-covered mountain every generation to deliver the law again. Jesus doesn't come back in physical form every generation to teach the Beatitudes again, does he? How does God intend for this stuff, for these very vitally important laws, these very vitally important truths, that he is our God and that he is one? How is that going to get down from son to son to son, from daughter to daughter to daughter? Well, verse 6. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, and you write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Again, notice the strange combination of sacred and common. This sacred teaching, the Lord our God, He is one. He is our Lord. He is our God, and He is one. And when do you teach that? When do you teach this sacred concept, this vital sacred concept? All the time. What about when I'm lying down? Yep, then would be good. What about when I'm standing up? Yeah, let's do it then. How about walking? Yes, for sure. Should I post this? I think that's a great idea. Where should I post it? I think on your doorposts and your gateposts. And I think you should hang them on your forehead. That's, they're this serious. Like it's this, this sacred truth, though sacred, needs to be in just in, in kind of infected, instituted in every common thing as well. That that's everywhere we go. And as Jared said, that word there, diligently, meaning to sharpen, I think it's important to understand that means intentionally, with a cause in mind, to make this stuff happen. That our children, we, we, we've bought into this mindset, I think in America, this is maybe the most dangerous way that, that America, the American dream has infected the church. Again, I, I'm a patriot, I love... Uh, my country, and, and yet the danger sometimes of the American culture of infecting the church probably comes out more in this than anything else, and that is the thought that we're trying to raise our kids to be successes. 
We want them to be over We want them to be the most educated or the most talented or the, the best athletes or the whatever. And so we're raising our kids and guiding them to be the best at the things that the world prizes. There's nothing wrong with any of those in their proper place. But in the meantime, sometimes I think we're forgetting to raise our children to be ministers of the gospel, to be little temples going around everywhere. Like we forget that part of it. That the reason we're raising up our kids is to train them for eternal greatness, not merely worldly success. And again, I think we get caught up in that pretty easily. Sometimes we're worse at it in the church than other things because we think our children should be better and therefore and we think our children are better and therefore we try to compete on the terms that the world offers us and we over-busy our lives versus intentionally raising them. I think parenting is a sacred role and that we should be raising our kids as though we are raising up priests in the household of God. Um, I think one of, the ways that, one of the ways this haunts us is with this specialization error that we've bought into. Now, it's not, specialization is not an error culturally. Here, here's what it comes down to. So I make a certain amount of money when I see a client. If you schedule an appointment with me, you're going to pay a certain amount of money to come see me at Aletheia, and, and that's, what the, that's, that's what my hour is worth, apparently, is that much money, okay? And, and so you say, and then I go, man, it's about time for me to change the oil in my truck. So it's going to take me, because I, I'm terrible at it, and I only do it a couple of times a year, I should rephrase, when I used to do it, I only did it a couple of times a year, and that's if I'm being faithful. More, it's more like once every other year, if it's all, all totally up to me, because I'm terrible at car maintenance. And so this is a this is something that I'm going to be doing. And guess what? It's going to take me an hour to do it. And I'm probably going to dump hot oil in my face and, and make a mess and, and not know where to pour the old oil. And, and there's no telling how many mistakes I'm going to make. It's going to take me a solid hour to get it done. Well, in an hour, I could have seen a client. I made a lot more money, right? So I, what I need to do is I pay someone who's good at that. And in 10 minutes, they can have my oil changed for 40 bucks. And then I go see a client, and I make that much more extra, and I make this profit. See, I can't even see. Notice how I'm at a place where I can't afford to change my own oil, right? It's financially not feasible for me to do that. I shouldn't be doing that. That's specialization. That's why we're also wealthy. Specialization is what makes us so wealthy. It's also what gets us into real trouble when there's a, you know, a breakdown in getting things from place to place like there is right now, right? Because we all do one thing, we do it really well, and somebody's got to <coughs> come get it here and there and bring it together, and supply chains fall apart, um, then we're in huge trouble if any of us fall apart. But that's, that's specialization. It's very effective. It works super well <coughs> when it comes to building a, a community. However, here's the problem. The problem comes in when you're talking about specialization about something that matters at the heart level. So if I hire a plumber to come and fix my plumbing, my children know that plumbing is not something that I'm passionate about, to use the term Jared was using a few minutes ago, not something that I'm passionate about. And which is okay. I don't care if my, parent, if my kids think I'm passionate about plumbing, right? So that's fine. But what happens? What happens in our homes, in so many of our homes, when our children come to us and say, um, Dad, I don't understand this thing I read in the Bible. Hey, Mom, whatever, what happened to Native Americans when they die? How is God going to judge them? And, and what does the parent say? Well, and ask the pastor. Ask the student minister. Right? Ask the children's minister. They're specialized people who do that. They're professionals that that's what they do. I do this. 
I don't have the time. I can't afford to spend my time doing that stuff. So I've hired a professional to teach you that stuff. The problem is you've just communicated to your child that that stuff I'm not passionate about. It doesn't matter that much to me. It's not that important to me. See, we can't do the specialization trap when it comes to faith. The Bible tells us it has to be something that the parents live out and show them. The specialization trap. Listen, listen to the opposite perspective here of the psalmist. Oh God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hair, oh God, do not forsake me. We got this one from Psalm 71. Oh God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those who come. Your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. You who have done great things, <coughs> O God, who is like you. Even to old age and gray hair, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation. See, that's God's plan for the transmission of the truth of who he is and what he teaches us is parent to child. Now, in the New Testament, we get this beautiful picture where Jesus expands even what family means. Expands the old one. While he was still speaking, Matthew 12, 46. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Verse 50, this, this defines the family of God, even as it expands. It does not cancel the nuclear family. It expands the nuclear family. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, there's the Father, is my brother and sister and mother. That's who we are to one another as well. The New Testament refers to us as the household of faith. It also refers to us as the children of God. Paul encouraged Timothy to treat older men as fathers and younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters. See, we all need family. We need our own biological and adopted families to pour into us, to teach us, to, to show us God's Word and the way they live. Because, see, we see them when no one else does. We see whether this stuff is real in their lives because we see them at the worst moments. Yes, I need dozens of fathers and mothers to teach me the paternal and maternal traits of God. I need hundreds of brothers and sisters to teach me the paternal and maternal traits of God. I need that all around me. In fact, in Mark 10, this is promised to us. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come <clears throat> eternal life. We need all these in our lives. This, um, this podium here, um, which is, is, I'm intimidated by, which is, I, don't have a I would never be able to preach from a podium like this. There's a podium that's been in the church, and it's moved from place to place kind of in the church in different ways. But typically, it's in the um, class that David and Shirley Lake teach. David has taught from this podium uh, for years. They, they come to that first service. He's one of the founders. They are one of the, some of the founders, prayers, elders, and teachers in our community and so we checked, and sure enough, one of his favorite verses is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. I think we have a picture of what's now on this. And uh, David asked, uh, between services, he said, um, he knows, because he's part of this conversation, that we're going to start a campaign soon um, for building some adult education space and some office space 
and some student ministry space. That's going to be coming. If you're one of those people, by the way, I didn't do this a couple of weeks ago. I'll mention it next week. But if you're one of those people who you know, like, oh, I want to give to that. I don't need to know the details. I know I want to give to that. There's already a place for that on our website that you can do that. But we're, we need student ministry space. Um, we're starting to, it's starting to become an issue. But <clears throat> David, I did only mention that because David said, let's plan to put this in the adult education building when it's ready. And I was like, that's perfect. But this is, this is one of their favorite passages, this idea. And they've led well with this. Um, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, this is what it says. David, surely you can see it. Thank you for leading us as we follow Jesus. Your example has taught us to trust the Lord and not to lean on ourselves, our experience, our strength, or even our own wisdom. Um, this is a powerful concept that we build on here and that, that they have helped us help lead to create a good foundation of saying, listen, we don't know what we're doing here. And that's one of our great strengths is that we're trying to trust in the Lord because I know better than to trust in me. And you know better than to trust in me and I know better than to trust in you. And so instead we're asking God to guide us and lead us because uh, that's, that's what we need. We need to trust in him with all our hearts. But the family then, the family system becomes a double priority, not less of one. The family of God and the nuclear family is multiplied in this picture. They're not a contradiction. What this means is, like a podium like this, <clears throat> in our families, moms and dads, grandparents, aunts and uncles, it's vitally important that we develop a platform and deliver a message. Both of those are needed in our families. Very often, one member of the family, one parent will be pretty good at, at creating a platform, but they don't deliver the message. And the other parent often is delivering the message without ever developing a platform. You, your parents were probably like that. There was one parent who was always, always giving instruction, but they never really earned that place in your life. And the other may have earned the place, but they never really gave you the clear instruction. We've got to be learning how to both develop that. Um, it's incumbent on us to live in such a way that our voices carry weight with our children. Earn the platform, deliver the message. Parents who are cruel or hypercritical or lack a loving marriage or who use religion as a pry bar or who paint Jesus as the bad guy, who are hypocrites or harsh either to the child or their other parent, who don't live in humility, who don't ask for forgiveness, who don't apologize, therefore are not living out this message that their children need to see. The family codes that we get in the Bible um, all through, family codes from that era typically placed all the responsibility on the dad. Dad, force this in your son, force this in your daughter, force this in your wife. But the biblical picture portrays children and wives as being moral agents, not just recipients of the husband. Whether it's Ephesians 5, 1 Peter 3, 1 Timothy 5, Titus 2, or Colossians 3. Wives, like in Colossians 3, 18, wives submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, look at this, is interesting. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. See, that cripples the opportunity for the gospel to move from generation to generation when the wife or the child sees parents who don't align with one another and who are harsh with each other. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. The, the language there, the provoke, that word provoke literally means to stir up their fire. But the, what's interesting is discouraged means to steal their fire or so that they have no fire. So the idea is we're supposed to encourage the proper type of energy and spirit in our children and not be destroying it. Last week, um, when Jim Dennison spoke, 
he referenced a story in which a Muslim came to a stranger because of a dream and walked up to them and said, what message do you have for me? That's kind of the Christian dream come true, right? Especially the evangelical dream come true is that a random stranger would walk up and say, God said you have a message for me. What's your message for me? Right? And it'd be awesome. Our children are doing that every day. They're coming to us every day. What message do you have for me? They're seeing what message we've given them. How are we living these things out? So is our wife. So is our husband. We're coming to one another asking for this. The church and the family integrated a place. Both are a place to live out the gospel and to have discipleship. The church and the family both are a place to be refreshed and encouraged. The church is the eternal extension of the family. It's a beautiful picture. The church is forever. So we emphasize the family here as an integrated power within the church and vice versa. The church is the eternal family. We embrace it and celebrate it. That's why we do the family dedication time. When we're telling families, this is the center of power, and we want to encourage you and, and, and unleash this in you. And now, like a good family, it's time for the church's version of a family dinner. So those people who, uh, who have <coughs> are going to be passing out the elements, if you'll come forward now and get these and start passing them out. I'm going to explain a little bit about communion as you start passing these around. Um, I'm going to recommend, strongly recommend that what you do when you take communion, when you take the cup, so it's together in two cups together, that you take, you take the plate thing first, so you take it, and then after passing it, then pull your cup. So if you have to pass it, pass it, and then pull your cups out of it. So what is communion? We spend a whole service sometimes on communion, but let me just give you an update uh, on what's going on when we do this. I believe communion is very clearly, uh, it is the, rec the recapitulation of the end of the Passover meal that is served as the last supper for Jesus and his 12 that we see in the Bible. And that's what's going on. The, the, the end of that meal is what we're doing with communion. In, in Passover, there are four cups. There's, one, there's a specific bread called the hidden bread or the, uh, the messianic bread that's hidden at the beginning of the, of the Passover. At the end of the Passover, this bread is revealed, broken, and passed around. And it's the messianic bread. It's the idea is that the Messiah has been hidden, <coughs> and our hope is that the Messiah will be revealed, and everyone will get to partake of this Messiah. If you've ever done a Passover, it's a pretty powerful moment. It's at the very end of the meal. It's done at the same time as the third of the four cups. At Passover, there are four cups that come from this passage in Exodus 6. Exodus 6 says, Say therefore uh, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out. And I will deliver you from slavery. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And I will take you to be my people. I will bring out. I will deliver. I will redeem. And I will take you to be with me. <clears throat> I think, it's my opinion, um, that, that Jesus revealed the messianic bread, broke it, and said, this is my body broken for you. And then passed around the messianic bread. It's always been me. Every time that, since the time of Moses that you've taken this bread, it's been me. And then I believe the third cup, because the last two cups are after the meal, that after the meal, the third cup, which is the cup of redemption, is the one that Jesus said, this is my blood shed for you. I believe that's what he does. 
in my opinion, the fourth cup, the one that says, I will take you out, essentially to be with me, is the one that Jesus says, this cup I will not drink until we're all together in my kingdom. Which makes sense, because that, that'll be when he comes back to get us. I think we're experiencing the power together. We take this as a family. We take it in unity. We take it in unison. Um, and so in a moment, Paul's going to walk us through. Come on up. Paul's going to walk us through this, and, and we'll take this together as a family in unity together um, to experience and celebrate the, uh, the spiritual truth of Christ's sacrifice physically.